Good morning, church family. Uh, my name is Mackenzie, if I haven't met you yet, and I have the honor of reading today's scripture. Normally, we would stand for the reading of God's word, but today we're going to stay seated because the passage is just a little bit longer. Um, we are reading in Luke 15, verses 17 through 24. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am, dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I'll say the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you are the author of our lives. You know the steps we are going to take, and you know what the plan is for each of us. And it is perfect, and it is your plan. Lord, I pray that we never forget who we are in you. We never forget that we are your sons and daughters. I pray that we meditate on these words and that you give David um, the words and um, just give him the ability to preach and let us hear what is yours and let everything else go away. In your name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. Uh, good morning. Happy holidays. Welcome to this intimate expression of the body of Christ. Um, many of us are coming off of a very busy holiday weekend. Each person in this room made a conscious decision this morning to wake up to arrive at this place so that we might gather with this intimate expression of the body of Christ. Uh, we do not take your presence for granted. We are grateful for you being here today. A lot of us arrive here today, <clears throat> perhaps physically exhausted, but mentally and emotionally filled up, having just come off of a weekend that we got to spend with friends and with family, a weekend that we got to pause a little bit and be reminded of all that we have to be grateful for. Others of us arrived this morning on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, mentally and emotionally spent having just passed several days being reminded not of what we have to be grateful for, but of what we don't have at all. What 
once was but is no longer? What is broken? What is missing? The things that bring us pain. If you are in that first category this morning, we celebrate with you. If you are in the second, we see you and we are here. Last week we ended fall sermon series in which we took several weeks kind of reminding ourselves of of who we are, of where we are, of where we're going, of these core tenets that we stand on as the church at Lachlan Springs. Next week begins Advent, which I am super excited about. Uh, For those of you that haven't walked through Advent season with us as a church, the church at Lachlan Springs may be the only congregation on the planet that intentionally slows down during the holidays. I'm excited to get into that rhythm of rest and reflection. But if you do that math, it leaves us one morning right here in the middle. And this morning, I wanted to spend a little bit of time exploring not only one of the most famous stories in the Scripture, perhaps one of the most famous stories in human history, the prodigal son. There's not a person here. Even if this is your first time darkening the door of a church, your first time sitting in pews that look like these, that there's not a person here that hasn't had at some point contact with this story. It has become a part of the culture, a part of the modern vernacular. We're all very familiar with the way this story plays out. It is stories like that that are so familiar they become cliched that are incredibly difficult to look at with fresh eyes. And that's my hope this morning is that we're going to have an opportunity to step back and recalibrate the way we view this story that is so familiar to so many of us. And the way that starts is by not beginning in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, where the story of the prodigal son starts. But yes, am I? No? Charlie's, uh, is that way too loud? Better? Thanks, Miller. Um, But we're going to go all the way back to the beginning of Luke chapter 15 to remind ourselves of of the setting in in order to really give ourselves a little bit of context to who Jesus was speaking to, to what Jesus was speaking about, which I think will change many of our our, our minds, our understandings about what this story is about to begin with. It starts at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, and, and Jesus is dining with what Luke often refers to as tax collectors and sinners, these folks that have been gathering and following him for, for so long. They're religious outcasts based on decisions they've made, based on things that have happened to them, based on the way they were born, based on all manner of things. But he's sitting around a table and he's dining with a lot of these folks, the the Pharisees and the scribes we see in those first couple of verses of Luke 15, are kind of standing in the background, not only in silent judgment, but, but in verbal judgment. How can this rabbi that so many people follow associate himself with these scofflaws and miscreants. I was just looking for a word to use those, looking for an opportunity to use those two words. 
Because when you would dine with somebody, you weren't only associating with them, you were allowing yourselves to be associated in, a, in an intimate way, to be viewed as someone that, that kind of walks with this group that has been outcast by the modern religious establishment. So several times throughout Luke's story of of. Jesus' public ministry, we see the Pharisees judging Jesus for dining with these sinners and these tax collectors. And it's into that context that Jesus tells not one, but three stories to the Pharisees, to those that are judging him. It starts with the parable of the lost sheep. A shepherd has 100 sheep. He looks up, he counts, there's only 99. So he leaves the 99 behind. He goes to find the one lost sheep. Jesus tells us when he he finds his lost sheep, he joyfully picks up the sheep, puts the sheep on his shoulders, goes back to the flock, calls all of his friends and neighbors, all of the other shepherds. My sheep was lost and now it's found. Let's celebrate. Immediately following that story, we've got the story of the lost coin. Follows the exact same pattern. There's a woman, she has ten coins. She recounts, now there's only nine. Turns her house upside down. Hands and knees, couch cushions, um, uh, every nook, every cranny until she finally finds that lost coin. When she does so, she calls everybody on the street. My coin was lost and now it's found. Let's have a party. Immediately after that story comes the story of the prodigal son. You know how it goes. He's a rich man. He has two sons. The youngest son comes to him and asks for his inheritance. Now, that's an odd scene to our modern American sensibilities, but to a Jewish audience 2,000 years ago, it would be shocking because this is like the ultimate insult. This younger son looking at his father and essentially saying, if I had a choice, I would choose that you were dead so that I could get what's coming to me, because I do not view you as a father. I view you only as the keeper of the wealth I am due. As shocking as that question would have been, can I have my inheritance, even more shocking to the audience is the fact that the father gives it to him. Now remember, at the time, wealth is not caught up in 401ks and stock options Savings accounts with compounding interest. No, it's in real estate and it's in livestock. In order to give his youngest son this inheritance, he would have had to sell off land that would have been in the family for generations upon generations. You don't ever get that back. Yet, the father says, okay, if this is your preference, here's your inheritance. Now, famously, this son takes all of the money. He goes to a far-off land, squanders everything, spends his money on cigarettes and whiskey and wild, wild women, right? We don't actually know that. It doesn't say that. That's what's always in our heads. All we know from the story is that he made some really bad decisions, He spends everything he had, and to add insult to injury, when it's all gone, suddenly a famine hits this country. Would cause absolute economic collapse. 
So now we have this young man, penniless, in a foreign land, no friends, no family, the economy collapsing around them, no way to get a job, no way to make money. The only thing he can find is working for a Gentile, which would have been a massive insult to a Jew at the time, slopping pigs, an unclean animal according to the Mosaic law, and he's so broke he can't even afford to eat the food the pigs are eating. Now this is a picture of absolute rock bottom. To a Jewish audience, it doesn't get any worse than the picture that Jesus is painting. Now, the reality is, that story that I just told, if it ends there, it would have been very familiar to all of the Pharisees and the scribes that were listening, to all the people around the table that were listening, because this is a story that would have been incredibly common within Jewish families. It's a story that grandmothers tell their grandkids. It's a story that's weaponized by parents, by mothers and fathers to say, this is what will happen if you leave the family. This is what awaits you out there if you turn your back on your blood. It was a story that was told time and time and time again. Now, these Pharisees and these scribes, they were smart people. They had seen the pattern. They remember the story of the lost sheep. They remember the story of the lost coin. They know exactly where this is going, and they're right. The story doesn't stop there. In, in verse 17, the first verse that Mackenzie read for us this morning, we see this son at absolute rock bottom, come to his senses. In the original language, it could be translated, he returns to himself, which I love that picture. He remembers who he is. He looks around, he sees himself sleeping next to pigs, unable to afford the food the pigs are eating, and, and he thinks about the way his father treats his hired employees. And he thinks this is, this is ridiculous. So he comes up with a plan. I'll go back. And I know I'll never be accepted. I know uh, what, I've, what I've done can never be forgotten. But I'll just ask my dad, can you just hire me as one of your employees? Because anything is better than this. So he starts the long journey home. It took at least days, perhaps weeks. Every single day he rehearses his speech in his mind. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you hire me as one of your employees the next day? Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you hire me as one of your employees day after day on the journey home? Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Would you hire me as one of your employees until one day he reaches the hill on the edge of his family's property? He knows as soon as I crest that horizon... I'm going to see my family home. I have no idea what's waiting for me there. Can you imagine the anxiety in that moment that he feels 
that he feels as he's beginning to walk that last mile, as he crests that hill, as he sees his home. But his dad sees him even before he can do anything. And his dad begins to run. Now, we know how this story ends. When we think of his dad running toward the sun, it fills us with joy. I can guarantee you it did not fill him with joy in that moment. First of all, for a man of his father's stature, you just didn't run. Children ran. Soldiers ran. Servants ran. Men with dignity did not run. You would have to to lift up your robe, expose your legs. It would have been incredibly insulting. But here is his dad running towards him, and he's got to be thinking, I knew it was going to be bad. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. What's he going to do when he gets to me? What's he going to say? And as we know, famously, as the father arrives, he's filled with compassion and he embraces his son and he covers him in kisses. It had to have been the most disorienting moment of this boy's life. Absolutely the opposite of what he would have expected. He has no idea what's going on. All he can remember is this speech he's been rehearsing for weeks, so he disengages from the embrace. He collects himself, Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against God. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but before he can even finish his speech, his father is calling out to the servants, Bring the best robe in the house. Put a ring on his finger. Put shoes on his feet. Slaughter the fattened calf. My son was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. It is a beautiful picture. I do not think we understand the profundity of it. The robe, the ring, the shoes, all symbols of sonship, all symbols not only of forgiveness but of complete restoration. Bring it all Drape him in the robe, put the ring on his finger, put the shoes on his feet. Because he is my son. You see, in that moment, it was as though nothing had ever happened. In that moment, it was though the son had never asked that thing he asked. He never did that thing he did. He never left in the manner that he left. His only identity was as a son. Completely and fully restored. And beyond that, we then see the fattened calf. Meat was pretty rare at the time. It would have been reserved for special occasions, for celebrations, for holidays. The fattened calf that was set aside, it was reserved only for the party to end all parties. It could have fed an army. It was the best 
sweetest, most tender meat reserved only for the greatest celebration. This moment was not a moment only of forgiveness. It was a moment of complete and total restoration in identity. And it was followed by a celebration beyond anything that we could imagine. That type of forgiveness, that type of restoration, that type of celebration, it is offered by our Father, each and every one of us. It does not matter what you've done. It does not matter what you've said. It does not matter where you've gone. Our Father offers us not only total forgiveness, but complete and total restoration. All we have to do is receive. As Jesus gets to the climax of this story, to this beautiful picture of restoration of the Son, to the robe and the ring and the shoes and the fattened calf. You can almost see the Pharisees and the scribes rolling their eyes. They knew it was coming. They had just heard the lost sheep. They had just heard the lost coin. We get it, Jesus. You sit around at that picnic table and you eat with these tax collectors and sinners. You eat with these people that we have excluded but you're trying to teach us that God welcomes them home. Have y'all ever been watching a movie and you're all in? You're following the plot, you know exactly where it's going. And then right at the end, they reintroduce a character that you haven't seen since the first scene that you forgot even existed and everything changes? As the Pharisees, as the scribes are rolling their eyes listening to that story, that's what Jesus does because you see the prodigal son doesn't end there. That's not the end of this story that we're so familiar with because you see, if you remember, the story begins, a rich man had... Two sons. The youngest son is the one we focus on so often. The youngest son is the identity we take on so often. The youngest son is the one we celebrate because of the forgiveness and restoration. But the story leads to the older son. You see, what we see at the end of this story is the older son out in the field. He can hear the party. He can hear the celebration. He has no idea what's going on. He asks one of the servants, hey, what's happening back up at the house? And the servant says, it's your brother. Your brother's home. Your brother's back. Your dad, he slaughtered the fattened calf. We're having a party. What does the older son do? Pouts. Stands firm right there in the field. Angry, bitter. I'm not going up there. The father at the celebration, 
The party to end all parties no doubt looks around and notices the absence of his eldest son. Now remember, this guy is the master of the estate. This is a very wealthy, a very powerful man. He is used to commanding his every desire. People would do his bidding at the snap of his fingers. Go get my son. Bring that idiot back up here. But he didn't. Again, in an act of incredible humility, the father goes out to the field to meet the son and pleads with him. Please come back to the house with me. But the son stands firm. I've done everything right. Done everything you've ever asked. I've worked for you every day of my life. You never even gave me a goat so I could have a party with my friends. And my little brother, who squandered our estate comes home and he has the fattened calf slaughtered. Luke chapter 15, verse 31. The father says, son, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. The end. You see, when... When the older brother is reintroduced, that's the big plot twist that nobody would have been expecting. But if that's the plot twist, now we get the cliffhanger. We're never told what decision he makes. We're never told what he does. What we know is this is a story that was told not to the sinners and tax collectors and outcasts and marginalized that Jesus was sitting with, associating with, but to the religious elite that made the practice of religion, that made the observance of the law their entire personality. And they would have been scandalized by the way this story ends. They would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. This is a story to illustrate the forgiveness that these women and these men have received if they only accept it. The full restoration is children of the living God. At the same time, this is a story of you standing out in the field all by yourself, angry and bitter. Has anybody ever read Tim Keller's book, Prodigal God? tiny book, quick read. It's a great book. I would recommend it. The title can be a bit off-putting for many of us, the prodigal God, but the reason is because we don't know what the word prodigal means. Because (laughs) who uses the word prodigal? Unless you're talking about this story, 
Our only touch point with that word is the prodigal son. So we assume prodigal, describing the son, it must mean wayward. It doesn't. Prodigal does not mean wayward. It comes from the same root as our word prodigious. What prodigal means is extravagant, over the top. And and certainly that can describe the way this son squandered his entire inheritance. He was recklessly extravagant with the way he spent. But even more than that, it describes this father. Extravagant, over the top, mind-blowingly generous to his sons. You see, we, we often think the star of this story is this son that runs away and comes home. At the same time, we can think, well, maybe the star of this story is that second son standing angry, bitter, alone in the field. The reality is this is a story about a God that is so scandalously extravagant with his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. One son received it and entered into the party to end all parties. The other son knew it, saw it, had experienced it, but was unable to give it. And at the end of the story, that's the one that is left standing alone, angry, bitter. Hearing the party only from a distance. This weekend, many of us were reminded of that thing we did. Of that time we said something unforgivable. Of the way we have treated those around us. And we were reminded of shame, guilt. We feel unworthy, unloved. If that was you this weekend, please. Remember, you have a father that is scandalously extravagant with his forgiveness. Forgiveness that equals total and absolute restoration. Identity as a daughter or a son of the creator of the universe. This weekend, many of us, We're reminded of that thing that was done to us. We were reminded of that thing that we should have, but we don't. We were triggered in ways we hadn't been triggered in 365 days. And we may not be triggered again for another 365 days. 
But during that next, this next 12 months, these next 52 weeks, these next 365 days, we are going to hold on to that with white knuckles. We can't let it go. We're going to stand in that field angry and bitter, unable to lay it down. Because though we have been forgiven, we are so unable to forgive others. Hear me say this. God's forgiveness and our forgiveness are different. This, this scandalously extravagant forgiveness and restoration is something I don't have the power to do. When I encourage you to lay these things down, to forgive that thing that was done to you, the way you've been spoken to, the way you've been treated, do not hear me say that means everything is okay. It doesn't always equal restoration of relationship. It can. My prayer is that it does. But there are also times that it can't. And that's okay. But what we do have the opportunity to do is be reminded of the way we have been forgiven and allow that to give us the power to lay that thing down. To give up the right to hurt those that have hurt us. To wish them well before our Creator. And to enter into the celebration, to end all celebrations. Please be reminded that son, as he stood in that field all by himself, at no point in time had he lost his inheritance. At no point in time had he lost his identity. At no point in time had he lost his sonship. But what he had done is rob himself. of the celebration to which he had been invited, and I don't want to see that happen to us. Lost sheep. Lost coin. Lost sons. Everyone ends in a party. All of us have the freedom to accept that invitation and enter into that celebration. And that is exactly what we celebrate this morning. Lord, it's my confession to you. That my understanding of your extravagant grace and mercy and love and forgiveness of me is muted by my inability to give that to others. We love because we are loved. We forgive because we are forgiven. This morning... Those of us that are in desperate need 
to be held and embraced and kissed by our Father. To recognize the fully, the full restoration that you offer. May we sit in that, may we receive that, may we celebrate that. Those of us that just can't leave that field. That only hear the celebration from a distance. May we lay those things down and enter into your fellowship this morning. Give us the courage to both accept and offer forgiveness that only comes from you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.